Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. New Society Publishers is proud to be celebrating 40 years of activist, solutions-oriented publishing. From our roots in nonviolent civil disobedience training during the Vietnam War, to today with over 500 books published, some across a dozen languages, we continue to bring positive solutions and cutting-edge ideas to some of the most troubling challenges of our time. Having never wavered from our mission to help build a just and ecologically sustainable society, placing planet and people before profit, we are proud to hold the highest environmental and social standards of any publisher in North America. With a dedicated community of changemakers and thought leaders, always working ahead of the curve, we look forward to another 40 years of bringing our readers books for a world of change. Without a doubt, the most important mission of our lifetimes will be regenerating this planet and creating a new culture based on care and stewardship for all life. But it can be hard to know where to start. After more than 150 episodes of speaking to leaders and innovators in the regenerative fields around the world, and working with clients and organizations to help them reach their regenerative goals, I've compiled many lists of essential skills and steps that anyone can take today to begin their journey towards a brighter future for themselves, their families and communities, and for the ecosystems that support them. Every two weeks, I'll send you a new regenerative skill that you can develop and expand on in your own life right away. What's more is that I'm creating a community of skill builders like you who are sharing their results and stories of success to inspire you towards greater action. You can sign up right now in the show notes for this episode or on the homepage at AbundantEdge.com. Start your week off right by building your skills for a regenerative future. As I've been slowly becoming better connected here in Spain over the last year, one of the main projects in regenerative agriculture that keeps coming up in my research and the conversations that I have is a fairly new project called Albelal, which is located in southern Spain, roughly between the cities of Granada and Murcia. Now the name Albelal relates to the first letters of the comarcas, or counties, where the initiative started, which are the Altiplano de Granada, Los Veles, and Alto Almanzora. Today, the Albelal territory covers more than a million hectares of degraded steppe known as the Altiplano Estepario. Now, I first found a connection with this organization through some other work that I was doing to help consult on the ecosystem restoration camp known as Camp Altiplano, which is actually a five hectare portion of the largest farm in the organization where they're trialing various agroforestry and holistic grazing techniques in an effort to restore the degraded site through economically viable production methods. The coordinator of the camp who I'd been in touch with connected me with the owner of the larger farm, who also happens to be the president of Albelal, Alfonso Chico de Guzman. Now, Alfonso is a unique example of a young man who decided to return to his origins on land and to help his family farm after graduating with a degree in business administration. He then immediately dedicated himself to transforming the farm through innovative and regenerative methods and to set up an organic market garden as well as fruit production and began to develop agroforestry methods through systems involving almonds and pistachios specifically. He's also implemented broad water harvesting earthworks with swales on contour and key line ponds in order to help to restore the watershed of this parched and arid region. Aided now by a team of international nonprofit organizations, he's become instrumental in showcasing and pioneering many dryland agricultural best practices and to help to motivate other producers in the region to follow suit. In this episode, we talk about many of the methods that I glossed over just now, as well as the overall response from the community in this transition. We also discuss barriers to progress and the challenges and roadblocks that he and others have faced in transitioning their farms, as well as some of the successes along the way. I was really excited to tap into such an inspiring movement, and I'm really looking forward to working more actively both with Alvedal and ecosystem restoration camps here in Spain as these projects continue to grow. So look out for updates in future episodes if you enjoy this talk. And from here, I'll hand things over now to Alfonso. 
Hey, Alfonso, thanks so much for taking time to speak with me today. I've been excited to talk to you for a while. You are helping to coordinate one of the most impressive regenerative agriculture projects in Spain. But uh, how are you doing today in general? Hello, Oliver. It's a pleasure to be in the interview. Uh, and uh, well, thanks for your kind words. Um, yeah, today, uh, well, is yeah. Uh, I don't know what to answer to that. <laughs> I think it's a challenging day. Before. Yeah, we were talking it's, earlier. It's, uh, it's a bit of a, for, for no reason in particular, a bit of a, a challenging day indeed. But uh, for, yeah, in general, uh, it's good. I think projects are going well. It's a beautiful sunny day. So, yeah, it's a good day. Focus on the positive. <laughs> well, so look, um, before we start going into the details of the Avalab project, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your personal background and how you started to work in agriculture in Spain? So I grew up in a family that we, my father and his father, we were all involved in farming. And uh, that's, yeah, that's how we were making a living off. Um, although it was more from the managerial uh, side of it, more from the office and not so much in, in the land. And then after studying my university, uh, I studied business administration and I thought that there was a lot of uh, things that could be experimented and room for improvement uh, in the farm. Uh, yeah, in the, the strategy in general and trying to make it uh, more sustainable so it could be... Um, farmed uh, for the next generations that they could do a bit the same as as we as we did because we were seeing that it was degrading quite fast and it was not so clear if the next generations were going to be able to make a living from farming at least not in our farm and i decided to move there and uh, I started experimenting on a little plot uh, more with vegetables and fruit trees and then from then on I started getting more and more experience and most of the experiments didn't work but some of the experiments did work I think that's that's in general how experiments go and uh, then started applying them more on a large scale and uh, yeah then started getting involved with more organizations uh, getting to know more people uh, trying to get uh, knowledge from their experiences and uh, and yeah, I think uh, that's a bit uh, the situation where we are now. That is a farm where there's uh, quite a big diversity of crops and projects going on. Well, so to give everyone sort of an idea of the context that you're working in, can you describe the Altiplano and southeastern regions of Spain and especially why they're in desperate need of restoration at this point? Yeah, so the Altiplano area were... Uh, the farm and the ecosystem restoration camp Altiplano are located is in the southeast of Spain so it's inland about a hundred and something kilometers kilometers from the sea from the Mediterranean Sea and it's an average of about a thousand meters over sea level uh, so it's it's a weather the climate that is not so easy for farming in general or for uh, restoring doesn't make things easy because it's quite cold in the winter. So we have freezing temperatures from October until May, especially at night. But then we have also very hot summers that we can get to 40 degrees in the summer. And uh, the average rainfall uh, in my farm is about 310 millimeters. Uh, and in other areas, it can be lower and in other areas a bit higher. But in general, it's quite dry Mediterranean uh climate with cold winters and so how has the land sort of gotten to the point where it is now because it didn't always used to look like a desert <laughs> no indeed uh well it it looked more like a oak tree forest uh, a couple of thousand years ago and it looked uh, more like a, a steep uh, step how do you mm -hmm. call it like in mongolia like uh yeah, the, a couple of thousand years more ago because it, apparently it was too cold uh, for trees. So, well, I think it's a landscape that has always been changing, but uh, through um, agriculture, that's when it uh, changed faster. And uh, in many areas, it got degraded quite fast. 
and I think it's basically because of applying same techniques as in other parts, uh, but that they don't really fit very well here or they are quite extractive and destructive uh, here. Um, I think mainly it was about cutting down the trees, uh, then especially doing cutting down the trees and doing farming on uh, steep parts and uh, slopes, and then overgrazing with sheep and doing that for a few hundred years, I think brought us in uh, the situation that we are now. Now, I'd love to break down some of the experiments and the trials and errors that you've had. But before we do that, can you describe who Albelal is? What is this project and how have all these different people and organizations come together with this idea of restoring the land of this brittle area through regenerative agriculture techniques? Mm, yeah, it's, uh, it's a long story that I'm going to see if I can... Uh summarize it uh, in an understandable way but it's uh, it started with the with the help and with the visit of the common land foundation that they wanted to fund uh, projects that were yeah interested in doing large-scale ecosystem restoration through regenerative agriculture through business cases that were sustainable and following that uh, their framework of the four returns that is the, the environmental, social, economic, and uh, inspirational. And uh, then they met a group of people that were in, in, this, in this territory. And this uh, group of people that were mainly a group of farmers and uh, other entrepreneurs that were already uh, doing efforts in um, this type of agriculture and in ecosystem restoration, uh, yeah, they decided to group together and uh, develop this project. And... It's this was about five and something years ago, and since then that group of people have been increasing. Now there is about 300 members, and many of them are farmers or landowners or involved in one way or another with um, regenerative agriculture and ecosystem restoration. And um, yeah, there's a team. It's it's managed by it's Albelalis and uh, the legal entities and association. It also has a team of people working on, uh, in it that uh, they help out, well, develop the projects, help out farmers with uh, advice, uh, soil analysis, consultancy, um, and um, yep, uh, it's it's about a million hectares more or less the territory that the that the association is working in that doesn't mean that uh, all the hectares are participating but that's the goal of it and that to try to have an impact on uh, all of them in 20 years and mm -hmm. then that's where my farm is and that's also where the Camp Altiplano is located so through common land John DeLew came on a visit and then he proposed uh, that uh, yeah it would be nice if it would, would be interesting for us to host um, one yeah the, the ecosystem restoration camp in one of the plots of the farm that we had some plans of doing some projects and uh, then yeah i think we we had a good connection we agreed that that uh, would be a good idea and that's where the the camp project has been going for the last uh, three and a half years more or less or three years and a, a few months um, that's uh, more in has been uh, focusing on having those uh, five hectares of land um, combining many of the techniques of um, ecosystem restoration uh, regenerative agriculture permaculture well uh, different ideas different options of how to restore um, a, a piece of land and hosting volunteers for helping out in the larger area of the, of the territory with uh, reforestation, uh, mainly on natural areas. Also uh, learning about uh, natural building and uh, setting up the, the facilities like the infrastructure of the camp uh, and, and the, the buildings with uh, carpentry. And um, yeah, that's uh, more or less, I don't know if, if I was able to summarize it. <laughs> For sure, for sure. And like you said, there is a lot going on. There's many different elements to this. And I've been in touch with Sylvia, who's 
managing the Altiplano camp, which is part of your land as well. Can you tell me now some of the objectives and the techniques that are being implemented right now to include sort of a farming profit in with the idea of restoring these lands to better ecological health? Mm, okay. So I think, uh, for example, in the plot of the camp, uh, most of the practices, I think that's especially interesting because most of them are being applied uh, in that five hectares plot because many of these techniques, they're applied in one farm or another or like two of these in this pl plot and one on another. But I think the interesting thing about the camp as well is that most of them are all concentrated in one plot and you can see them all at the same time. Those go are from um, swales that are these trenches that follow the contour lines that help um, infiltration of water and reduce the erosion. Uh, then there are uh, trees. So for uh, agroforestry, there is uh, trees, mainly almond trees, but also some others in combination with ground cover. Then there is an area of just uh, pasture. There are a couple of um, sediment traps. There are also some ponds that have uh, water permanently. There is a fruit tree area as well. And um, the things we do, well, from uh, the ground cover to managing the, the, that ground cover with uh, holistic management of uh, grazing with a breed of uh, the first year was, was with uh, sheep. And then uh, this year was with a small number of cows that with, um, with a fence, uh, they go between the the areas so they don't eat the trees and yeah the well the ponds that's uh, they're quite self-explanatory how the the benefits of ponds uh, they there are many they go from not only improving by the biodiversity but also helping infiltrate the water receiving the the runoff uh reducing the erosion and then there's they're kind of a, an oasis in the middle of the of the desert because there's not many places where you can see surface water here and they they help also uh refill the aquifers so when there's uh, big rain events uh on the area of the camp there used to be yeah a storm where uh, it has a water catchment of more than 250 hectares and then the the soil would not be able on that water catchment to to absorb all the water and there would be yeah a river literally of millions of liters of water going through in a few minutes or in a few hours and now with all these sets of ponds many times we're able to to capture and infiltrate slowly that water uh, in fact uh, we've managed to have a little stream of water going on for most of the year uh, depending on how how dry or rainy the year is, but it's it flows between six and nine months a year, which is uh, really really nice to see. It's something. Yeah, that's I a dramatic change for that area. Yeah, yeah. And to think that so these methods have mostly just been implemented on this one five hectare spot, correct? Yeah. So in uh, between all the members of Alvelala and all the farms that are involved, uh, you see how all of these um, techniques have been implemented uh, in, in a lot of these farms. But uh, in, the, in the camp, they have all been implemented there uh, combined. Also compost, yeah. uh, also, well, I, uh, probably I, I'm missing some of them, but um, yeah. Now it's really exciting to have sort of a test place like that where you can try all these things and then start to implement them on larger plots for the farmers themselves. And what have been some of these techniques that have been most embraced by the farmers of this area and that they've seen the best results from? The ponds, for example, that's something that has been uh, quite embraced. And uh, those were the first ponds that were made uh, in, in the area. And now, well, I don't know the exact number, but uh, I think the number can be close to 100 ponds that have been made. Uh, no, I think more than 100 ponds have been made lately in the last three years uh, and I think definitely those ponds uh, at camp have been uh, quite inspirational for that and have helped people to see the results and to see the importance of it. Swales also um, I think um, at camp there are some uh, but the thing is that 
you don't see a lot the effect because of uh, there's quite a thick uh, layer of vegetation, so there's not that much runoff, and the the soils don't get uh, filled up, which is it is actually good. But then it's difficult to see the the effect of them that on the rest of the farm you you can't see it how when it rains they do get full uh, quite fast. And also now there are I think almost a hundred kilometers of swales in uh, different farms of different members of Alvelal. And the yeah the the combination of that ground cover with compost that is uh, something also that some more people are applying, but just as a grazing uh, concept because there is like really nice pasture coming out that yeah we thought that that would not really be possible with our climate and our soils, but it is with a combination of wild uh, seeds and legumes and compost. Uh, but for example, what we've seen is the, the having the agroforestry system since uh, ha trying to make it happen from the beginning of uh, buying trees from the nursery and putting them in holes and having a, a ground cover of yeah, a thick uh, vegetation all year round. We've seen that that's very challenging for trees. So the soil is good and the vegetation is good. But the trees uh, struggle to survive. Many, uh, like they needed irrigation, others they were not able to survive. And the ones that do, they are not uh, developing very fast. While the ones that are tilled either uh, little or very intensively, the, the soil uh, is more exposed and it's not so benefit, but the trees uh, do develop faster. So also I think it is important to to have the examples of both what works and what doesn't work. And I think the camp also is a good place to have uh, both and maintain them for a couple of years so people can see uh, the, the, yeah, the, the successes and the struggles and the lessons learned. And many times when it happens in a, another plot, what doesn't work, then that's removed and you cannot really see it. And then it's easy for the next person to make the same mistake again but uh, i think it's right, especially right. useful that here that you can see it with your own eyes yeah that was one of the main things that i was speaking to the other day with sylvia about is the tree planting techniques and how it's been somewhat counterintuitive thinking that you know putting ground covers and having more organic matter would be better for the trees but in this case it hasn't worked out kind of the way that that experiment was intending to prove but it's important like you said to show both sides and you know, you might have an idea about what works, but this is exactly why experiments are done so that we don't have to guess and we can actually show it through through action like that. And that's really cool. I know that tree crops are a big part of the economy and the potential economy of that area that can serve a ton of other ecosystem functions as well. What are some of the main tree crops that are being trialed and implemented on the farms in that area? It's uh, mainly almond trees. And uh, that's it's an area that has had uh, this crop of like a few thousand, like a few thousand hect thousands of hectares of almond trees already for a few decades. Um, they adapt quite well, but it is a challenge to to do it in a way that is also sustainable and that is uh, they don't receive an intensive tilling uh, in some farms they are used to do eight times a year which is what we've seen uh, is is not even is not good for the soil clearly but it's it's not even good for the trees uh, then the other extreme would be to never till and uh, to, to which seems to be good for the soil but not so good for the trees at least in the first years and uh, and yeah, that's that's all, wh one of the things that we are experimenting the most and sharing the most knowledge and understanding uh, how it happens and um, how the trees and the soil behaves in different types of soils with different types of management. Uh, but it's yeah, that's the the main crop uh, tree-wise. There's also some areas with a lot of olive trees, and uh, slowly also you see more and more uh, plantations of uh, pistachios. Mm. So this being sort of the main crop implemented in a lot of these areas, which is fantastic that it's a perennial and that it has all of these uh, benefits for the ecosystem as well. 
But have you started to stack enterprises within this system, like uh, running silvopasture with animals in between the tree rows or intercropping in between the lanes? Uh, yeah, so some things are uh, already implemented for a few years. Other things are still in an experimental phase. But for example, in uh, Aldelal, there's... Uh, the, we try to promote that uh, people leave a ground cover at least during the cold and humid, mo humid months of the year between the trees. That means from uh, October until March, April, depending on how the year is. And then it's uh, also promoted that uh, that ground cover is grazed during the winter with the sheep. So that's something that uh, it was not very common to do before, only in uh, very few farms that was happening. And now it's something that you see happening more and more often. And you see that it's clearly a benefit for the soil and a benefit for the trees and a benefit for the economy as well. It's an extra income uh, that you have. So that's, uh, that is something that is definitely happening. I mean, another thing that you see happening more and more is leaving uh, after March when, the, when all that vegetation is incorporated in soil by, by tilling uh, in some parts to leave in the middle of the, of the land uh, at least two meters wide where the, where the vegetation is uh, left there, is not uh, incorporated. And that we've seen uh, also, uh, we can kind of um, prove after a couple of years in a row that uh, that's also beneficial for the soil and for the trees. So I think a lot of these things take a couple of years uh, to demonstrate that it's working not just because the, it was a rainy year or because it was a dry year or because of this type of soil or because of this uh, yeah, circumstance, but that it uh, consistently works in, uh, in most of the situations. Well, that's really the trick, isn't it? When you're doing experiments like this with slower maturing systems like tree systems and with all of the different variables that come in from the weather patterns from year to year, it can be really difficult to show that what you've implemented is really working because of the way you implemented it or the way the experiment was run and not just an anomaly from these other factors. And it's it, yeah, like you said, it does. It takes a while to really get to the bottom of whether this is worth repeating or this was just something that got lucky because, you know, there was more rainfall this year, for example, or it was dry and this, this was a benefit to the particular circumstances. How long would you say you like to leave things before feeling confident about giving recommendations on systems like this? Yeah, we try to wait five years. So we try mm -hmm. to be careful in that. And, uh, and even when we try something and it's, uh, it seems to be a success, uh, we try to wait five, five years to confirm that uh, it works uh, and, uh, and before recommending it to the rest of the people. Because yeah, otherwise, if we make official recommendations to other farmers and it's something that uh, yeah, we'd work one year or it'd work in one farm, but it doesn't work uh, in the rest, then um, it's, it takes a lot of time to gain your credibility, but you can lose it quite fast uh, sure. if you make a mistake uh, on one of those things. Yeah. And I mean, five years is quite a chunk of time. How are you helping these farmers to transition even before you're really confident about the methods that you're able to recommend? Are there things that just about anybody can get started with that will have an effect on you know, positive management for the ecosystem? Or is it really worth waiting until these things can be demonstrated more concretely? Well, there are a couple of uh, methods and a couple of techniques that are uh, very clear that they work very well. And uh, that's something that we are already recommending um, most of the farmers from the very beginning. One thing is to apply compost. And uh, that's something that uh, is also... Uh, uh, a technique that is adopted very fast uh, by by most of the farmers because it's an investment that you see the results uh, within the same year and uh, they they see the benefits and the economic benefits uh, benefit because they increase the yield uh, within a few months and um, and that all also stays in the soil that it's good for the next years and also when you do a soil analysis after a few years of applying compost you you can see it so that one is is quite easy to do. The, um, 
the ponds also is something that we recommend uh, from the beginning. That's something that uh, you don't see the economic uh, benefits so fast, but uh, you do see all the others uh, really, really fast. And then um, the, the ground cover that is during the, those months of winter, that's also that we recommend from the very beginning. And the, the grazing of the sheep, it depends on the sheep and on the shepherd to make sure that um, there's no goats involved because then those goats, uh, they will start also biting uh, a lot of the trees. And uh, the, we tried with cows, but we saw also that we, uh, the trees, unless they are very big, they get destroyed uh, quite fast. But with the, the variety of sheep that we have in the area, it works really well. And um, also through a cooperative that we have that is called the Almendresa. So it's a mix between the almonds and the Deesa system. That's what we are trying to, to, to go towards. Uh, that is um, selling uh, these products of almonds that are from these farms that are applying all these regenerative uh, agriculture techniques. And then they're selling at a premium price that the farmers can use back that uh, extra price to invest it back in applying these practices in their farm. So let's say that the clients are financing the restoration of those plots. That's really exciting. And that was actually one of the things that I would love to go into more detail about is how this affects the economy of the farmers. Because, you know, first of all, it takes a while for a slower maturing system like this to get established. And there's a down period before they're producing when they still need to be making money and be able to invest in these processes. What are, first of all, what are some of the ways that they can keep the money flowing until the trees have matured? And what are sort of the, the promises of returns that help them get a higher market value because of the better methods that they're, that they're using? So for the second part, the market is there. So now it's, uh, it's quite clear, it's big, and there is a high demand. Uh, actually, we have kind of a, a problem that is it's not really a problem, is that we don't have enough supply to, mm. for, for all the clients that are willing to, to buy these products. It's uh, these almonds, but now also we are doing it with honey, with uh, olive oil and we're starting to get into the aromatics as well so basically all the products that come come out from that uh, system um, and uh, also we want to do it with the lamps as well with the but oof, that's uh, that's a bit of a di more difficult one to get to the final client with uh, with lamp but we're working on it on it and um, that one, well, the farmers, they see the benefit from the beginning. So they know that to have a, a field fully restored is going to take many, many, many years. Uh, but with this system that the client is financing the restoration of it, then that's uh, a really good way to do it. Because otherwise, uh, it's very difficult for a farmer that many times is already struggling to survive that year to ask them to make a large investment in, uh, in all the right. land. Right. Uh, to restore it so this this system is yeah is being quite successful and it's uh, very well received by the clients and also very well received by the farmers that they are quite happy with it uh, the, the, the first that you asked uh, this and the other one the first one i uh, uh i just I sure how are they able to make that leap to these slower maturing systems with uh with other i guess shorter term investments are they producing annuals are they relying on outside funding yeah most of the farms have a diversity of crops so uh and also we try to promote uh, that people don't get monocultures and that even if one crop is now more profitable than others that uh, people uh, farmers don't get the uh, temptation to just plant everything of one thing and and most of the farmers actually yeah the, they don't they they have um, a farm that is diversified that uh, they, they have almonds that they have uh, grains and uh, many have sheep as well so that's quite a common one to see but there's also more and more aromatics more and more pistachios and some olive trees as well and um, that's also a source of income that uh, that yeah you have some things that give you in short term others medium term others long term and uh, yeah, if you want to change the whole farm to trees from grains, from uh, annuals to perennials, then you either have a lot of money or you either get a very big loan. 
mm-hmm. because it's difficult to to yeah, survive the five or six or seven years that the trees uh, that of the time that they it, they take to start giving uh, proper yields. Given all of these benefits and the fact that you can demand much higher prices at market for crops that are produced in this way, what are the barriers for other producers and getting people interested in these methods? Is there still some pushback from the community and from the industry at large? Or is it just a matter of the time it takes to get these types of uh, new systems established? Uh, Well, you always have the early adopters and people that are more innovative and uh, they are interested in also very interested in the environmental part of it and that they they do it even if it's uh, knowing that it's not easy or even if it wouldn't be profitable or even if it takes a long time and then you have other people that have different mindsets for whatever reasons you have also uh, people that have been doing something in one way during their whole lives and they're about to retire and then they are not very interested in changing their whole system in their last years and complicate themselves so much um also there are some people that they they need to see it with their own eyes and they need to see the results in from from a neighbor that is very nearby otherwise they are quite skeptical and i think they're yeah it's totally fair that they say yeah this that works there but that soil is a bit different uh, the rainfall is a bit different or the circumstance whatever is different so they want to see it uh, happening and working uh, nearby and another thing is that um, the, the trust also with the with the, with who to use your selling that uh, some people are doing something with one method and selling to one client for many many years and now is basically not only uh, promoting to to change the method, but many times, yeah, if they want to get an extra price, a better price, they have to change to a new client, and that always entails a risk. And um, sure, I sure, think farmers sure, in general sure. are very conservative, and they say, if, if this has been working for twenty years, and I've been selling it, and I've been receiving the money, like why would I take the risk uh, to do it, even if they are paying me twenty percent more? Same people think that the risk is too high but now after a couple of years that uh, it's been shown that uh, yeah it, the system works the method works you can go see the farm and you can talk with the farmer he sold it and he received the money not just for one year but already for three years in a row that uh, that slowly creates uh, trust but uh, indeed you can uh, gain a client or gain a member and it takes years and that it's very difficult to get to to get new people involved but it's very very easy to to lose them if you make mistakes yeah yeah undoubtedly and and totally understandably as well i mean it is such a risky industry to be in these days and actually kind of always has been because you're really at the mercy of what commodity prices are like what the weather is going to do and so many other things that are sort of out of your control that adding any extra risk to that is very understandable that they'd be hesitant if not you know pushing back completely to do it but it's, i think it's remarkable and it says a lot about the the understanding of the people around there that they have taken these risks up to this point and fortunately those earlier adopters that you've mentioned were able to do this and now we're at the point where there are very clear demonstrations and basically techniques and recipes for them to follow to transition in a much more secure way. And I think that's, you know, absolutely essential, not just here in Spain, but around the world to turn this into a movement rather than just, you know, a small collection of experimental farms trying to do something different. Yeah, indeed. And it's uh, it's in a sector that is, is especially conservative, but it makes total sense because it's not uh, just that Yes, if a farmer makes a mistake that loses his job, it's not just his job, but it's also his house, all his wealth, his lifestyle, his family. So yeah, he, everything's everything on the line. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so we've actually mentioned a lot of different things here from the water harvesting techniques of putting in contour swales, building ponds, and all of these other things. And this costs a lot of money. How have you been finding that? I mean, obviously, with the the help of international organizations, you've been able to put in some of these sort of as a trial with their financial support and with expertise coming from a lot of different sources. 
But for the farmers who are implementing this, is it a, an issue of just figuring out a way to fund it themselves? Is it something that they can get bank loans for? Or are there other ways to assist these kind of structural changes in the land that pay off hugely down the line, but can definitely be difficult to get the funding for in the beginning? Yeah. So indeed, it is, for example, quite difficult to get loans for non-productive investments, let's say non-productive in an economic way, uh, if, if they're not going to give you yield like, uh, like the ponds or like the swales or something that is not so clear that it's going to increase your productivity in the short term. So loans are difficult for those parts. Uh, but um, we've been receiving some, um, some donations from indeed international um, entities that uh, mainly private ones to make these first examples of swales of uh, ponds uh, hedges and borders and things like that and that Aldelal has been able to give some of these uh, incentives and some of these subsidies to some farmers to set up a few of those examples a bit in a faster way so people other farmers could go and visit them and, uh, and have them a bit spread out throughout the territory. And, uh, but the money is very limited. So even though like many more people would like to, to do a lot of those things also with uh, those donations now, uh, there's, not, uh, there's not enough left. Uh, at the beginning, there was a very small organization with, uh, with a few people, but now that is growing, there's, there's more people than than donations available for all of them to, to do those things. But also you see how the commitment increases and how uh, more farmers uh, do it just uh, with, with like paying it all themselves and all with their own money, especially the ones that are selling at a premium price. That's one of the conditions that you have to invest back. And uh, that doesn't mean that the first year you have to do all the ponds, swales, uh, compost, ground cover and aromatics that you need and hedges and borders. But um, you, you have to start and uh, year by year you have to, uh, to, to do, implement more and more of those things. And uh, some well, are, are more committed or, or want to do it that transition faster and uh, others slower. But yeah, thanks to that, you do see how... There are now, yeah, that's almost 100 kilometers of swales, hundreds of ponds, uh, like thousands of hectares that are applying compost, uh, thousands of hectares uh, that are now um, with a, in sheep uh, grazing uh, with uh, in between the trees that before it was not happening of ground cover. And yeah, you see how more and more farms are increasing the diversification of crops. And yeah, I think it's a slow but a steady process. Yeah, undoubtedly. And actually, you reminded me there another thing that I had forgotten to ask when you mentioned it about the compost. Compost can be difficult to come by in a lot of places. Are there resources where you are where you can where you can purchase it, where there are producers and, and truck it into place? Or are there large scale compost making methods that people have adopted um, all the way up to producing with machinery? Yeah, you see a bit of everything. So more, most of the small farmers, they are buying the compost either from other farmers that are making it themselves or from uh, a few like companies that are making it in a, on a large scale. There are many also different recipes and ways to do it and with different resources. You see uh, the most common one is from sheep uh, manure and it's mixed with uh, the straw and the, the shell of the rice and uh, yeah, different other microorganisms and stuff. That's the, the one we do, for example, in our farm is mainly with uh, sheep and horse manure that we have in the farm with the straw. And we add uh, some microorganisms from the forest uh, that we multiply. We add uh, a bit of sugar and we add some um, uh, ashes from, uh, from all the stoves uh, that we use during the winter mm -hmm. in, the, in the farm. And then with... Uh, machine that we have we turn it around uh, in our case because it's a big farm it's it's worth it for us to make it ourselves and there are some other farms that do it as well but uh, in general people buy it yeah yeah well it's fantastic that it's available i've been to so many other places where you couldn't buy it even if you wanted to it's just it's hard to come by 
And it is actually, true that it's getting less available. It's getting uh, because more and more people see the uh, how good it is, and then the price is increasing, and the, and the, uh -huh. yeah, the amount is limited. So you do see that uh, yeah, people would like to apply a lot more than what they they're able to find. Well, hopefully that'll create a market for other producers to come in, or you know, if they're able to charge higher prices for a good finished compost product that perhaps the farmers themselves will be able to invest in machinery to be able to produce larger amounts and and realize that you know they'll be compensated for it yeah indeed i've heard lately of just some people considering getting sheep just uh for the manure and wow. just for making compost <laughs> so that's wild that's fantastic that those types of products are beginning to be valued the way they should <laughs> but it's crazy to think that that might be the primary product when you're actually getting animals <laughs> so look um i i would be amiss if i did not focus on the incredible amount of community work that avila does as well i know we've talked a lot about you know the focus on the land and the farming aspect and the economy but tell me a little bit about the projects in the community that are happening and how it's helping to solve one of the biggest issues of your area, which is the issue of rural depopulation, which frankly is a big problem all around Spain and in many parts of the world. Yeah. Um, well, I think we're trying to fight that. I think every, everything we do is kind of fighting that either in an active or in a passive way uh, by making farms more diverse, needing more more work and more hands uh, you're trying to yeah, creating jobs uh, and making them more profitable so people can reinvest invest money in uh, yeah in, in making more things in the farms that um, that can allow people to stay and not to have to go to the cities to find a job but um, also there are projects going on like one is with aromatics that is uh, in a combination like it's for educational purposes uh, and it's in a combination with an association of handicapped people that they are the ones that maintain the the garden of aromatics and are also developed in the business case to sell those essential oils and those uh, finished products um, uh, to the market that that helps at the same time finance this association and that was done uh, like in a collaboration uh, between Alvelal and uh, other international foundations that helped finance that project. Like you have, uh, well, the ecosystem restoration camp, for example, is, is a clear example of how to also connect uh, the local people and um, the local community with the international world and how uh, young people from uh, yeah, many parts of the world come to practice ecosystem restoration, to help doing reforestation. And that has been interesting of seeing the reaction of many local people like, but why do these people come here? Like of all places, like what does this place have? I know, mm, and they mm. start thinking like if, if people from outside are valuing and saying how, how beautiful it is and what potential it has, uh, also many people here start valuing it uh, themselves as well. So uh, sometimes they have to come from outside to, you know, to, to value what you have. And yeah. also the case in a lot of that, places. Yeah. Yeah. And and just having that movement of people uh well creates more movement of people, you know. So more people coming, that means more uh the sh the local shop that for example was going to close decided to stay open a bit more because now there were more people buying uh things from it. And uh, the bar also said, Well now they're putting the place uh, next to next to my my farm but uh, you see it in other places that yeah there's it's getting more active uh with farms having yeah getting more busy and uh, creating more jobs i can put an example in in my case in our farm uh, when i went to live there it was empty then it was one person and uh, then four years ago we were three people and uh, now well now because of the virus everything is a bit uh, more slow but we are 10 people living there sometimes we are more than 20 when uh, some more students come by or some volunteers to help to reforestations uh, we can be up to 30 people 
uh, also working full time with the with the machinery and with the tractors and maintaining the crops. Before it was one person, now there's five full time people, and I think it's increasing. And I think it's it's just an example of what's happening in other farms as well. I think this is one of my favorite examples to point to that where when you start to invest in life, it expands sort of exponentially or syntropically. Like you said, bringing more people, creating more work. Um, certainly the amount of the products that are available to support the economy, to support the community, all of this comes out of investing in the building blocks and the health of life in your area. And I think it's absolutely incredible what this organization is doing. I'm so excited to be more increasingly involved with it and, you know, participating through the ecosystem restoration camp side. Before we go, though, Alfonso, could you tell our listeners how they can get in touch with the organization, how they can learn more? And I know that there's some exciting uh, workshops and learning opportunities coming up. Can you tell us about those? Yeah. So uh, you can get in touch with the uh, Camp Altiplano through Facebook. That it's uh, yes, uh, the name is Camp Altiplano, and uh, that also through the Ecosystem Restoration Camps uh, Facebook uh, and through the website as well um, of uh, the Ecosystem Restoration Camps. You can find the the link to the Camp Altiplano. And then to have find more information from Alvelal, you have also the website is alvelal uh, uh, net, and there's also Facebook and Instagram, I believe as well. I think there's also an Instagram from uh, Camp Altiplano. And uh, yeah, I think the, those are the best ways. And also through the social media, you can. Uh, find out like what are the next activities uh, or uh, workshops or uh, the next programs for uh, doing reforestation that they will be in the autumn and in the winter. That's very exciting. And I can't wait till I'm able to make a trip down there and see it all in person. It's so much fun to be in contact and to see pictures and everything online, but it's a whole nother thing when you actually get to experience it on the ground. Hopefully sooner than later. We're over, yeah. Well, Alfonso, thank you so much for taking the time. It was great to talk to you. I look forward to remaining in contact and hopefully working with all of you down there more, more in person as soon as possible. Yeah, it was a pleasure, Oliver, and I hope to see you soon over here. Thank you. All right, we'll talk soon. Bye. Bye. All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.